right, no, don't sit. No, wait, you guys, you can't sit back down yet. Will you guys stand back? No, really. Will you guys stand back up. Here's what I, so I came back from vacation. I know it's like a football game. It's like Notre Dame. Like, do I stand? Do I sit? Do I cheer? What do I do? Fight, fight, fight. I know. So anyhow, I came back, and, I, and after a vacation, I sat in Sunday service last week, and Pastor Vinny, whom is like a son to me and uh, is just a guy that I got to disciple and, and actually hand off a church to. He was here and he did something last week that I just thought was powerful. We're in Acts chapter 6 and 7 today. Uh, if you have a Bible, have your app. I want to read these final pieces. And I just remember the time when we began to stand and read God's word. And, 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 and it isn't, it's just that we want God to speak today. And it's just giving honor. It isn't about me. It isn't about you. It, it, it isn't about what I have to say. Really, it's about God's word. And so I just want to stay. I, I just want to stand. I, I want to read this over us. It's actually the very last verses we'll read today. But then I want to pray for us, and we will dive into our, our message. Acts verse 7, starting in verse 55, it says this. But he, meaning Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, the religious leadership, cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at them. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Generations Church, this is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we come together this morning, we come together around your word. There is nothing I have to say, nothing that can change lives that I can do. No words I have are good enough for all that we need, but yours are. You are the word of God that became flesh, Jesus. You are God incarnate, our Savior, our Lord, our God. You are the promised one of Israel. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. When we are in need, you have everything we need. Whether we are a father, whether we have children or we have a father, whether we have a good father, a living father, a missing father, whatever we have, Jesus we can look to you. You're our strength, you're a source of life, and Jesus, we ask that you would speak, that I would fade into the background, that your words would come out, and that you would give us life, because Jesus, we need life. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. So Acts 6 is where we're going to pick up the second half of that today, and we're going to enter into a story uh, about a young man named Stephen who now, I've spoiled the entire ending for you, he dies. <laughs> if you're new to the Bible and you haven't read this story, spoiler alert, right? But here's what happens, and I'm, I'm just going to give you, I'm gonna, like the rest of Acts shifts at this moment, at this place, in this time because of Stephen. And what happens is Stephen is executed. He's murdered by religious leadership. He dies in this story, and what happens is a shift takes place in the church. And so up until this point, the church is gathering in Jerusalem, and it's growing. It is becoming thousands of followers of Jesus, all primarily Jewish people. In fact, I'd say 99.9% .9 Jews are there in Jerusalem, very Jewish place. They meet in a temple, very Jewish also, Right? Jewish, uh, a Jewish savior, a Messiah, Jesus, who was born, a Jewish man, kind of lived the life of a rabbi and teacher and healer, but was also God become flesh, who would go on to be betrayed by the Jewish religious leadership, who would be executed for claiming to be God, and said, listen, you can kill me, but I will return in three days, and this is how I will accomplish the redemption of humanity. And so as you know, Jesus was executed. He was crucified on a cross. He was laid in a tomb. Three days later, he was risen from the grave. And so Jesus is alive, and, and, and Jesus is alive today. But the story we're in, really, this is in the first few years after that. And so the message that that Jesus that was executed, that Jesus we saw die, that Jesus that we buried, we've also seen him alive. 
And I think in 2,000 years of church, I think we miss the weight of that story. I, th I think we miss the weight of understanding that there is someone who was once dead and is now alive forever. And it's separated by 2,000 years of history, and those who saw him live, die, and live again, all of those have gone on to die. Most of them have been executed for their faith. And so we, we miss kind of some of the weight of a living Jesus. But in this first century church, in the years just following Jesus resurrected, ascending back to heaven, in the years just following that, a faith breaks out inside of Judaism called Christianity. In fact, it will be only be called Christianity later. At this time, it's just called the way. It's just those who are followers of Jesus. And they're primarily Jewish, and they're meeting in a Jewish temple and there's started to be problems. There's, there's, the, there's, there's distinctions made between very Jewish Jews and very Greek Jews, as we heard about last week. And there's rising up tensions. And so what I would tell you, even in the first decade of the church, as things from the outside at least numerically, numerically look really good, things are struggling inside. And we're going to see that come to pass with a man named Stephen. But here's what takes place at the execution of Stephen. And here's what we will see in the rest of the book of Acts. As Stephen goes out like a, an, an amazing, faithful martyr, Christianity will lose its comfort zone of Jewish Jerusalem and the temple. And it will force it beyond its comfort zone into a global faith. It will move from a Jewish sect into a global faith. And it's done so because a man named Stephen is executed. So if you're a note taker, if you're in community group, let me give you our main idea today. The church is built on the power and the promises of God rather than the gifts or the plans of man. And here's what I would tell you. As we're going to see this today, we'll, we'll try and highlight. It's a large passage. We're going to move fast. But here's what I will see. There are so many places that me, that, that Jeff, I... I when I look at this story, there's so many places where God intervenes into human history for God's purposes to redeem humanity, and I just look at the story and say, I'd have done it different, right? Now, clearly, we're going to assume up front God's right and I'm wrong. But when you look from the outside, you just have to look at the story and say, you know what? Sometimes what God is doing is really hard, and it doesn't make sense. And the way we see things not always the way God is doing things. And so Acts 6, we're going to pick up right there in the middle, starting in verse, I think it's 8. And it says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen, as we saw last week, as tensions are rising up, as the widows are not being cared for appropriately, there's been a distinction made between widows who are more Hebrew and Jewish than there are widows that speak Greek instead of Hebrew, the Hellenized Jews. And so there's this distinction being made amongst the widows. And so again, it's kind of a racial divide, if you will. And so the, the church itself, the leadership of the church, raises up these seven men to help come in and evenly distribute this and care for some of the needs. Stephen's one of them. This is a modern-day deacon. In fact, as Jesse was just saying, our deacons, so you, you'll often see our elders and leaders, you'll see them up here with their wives, and they'll serve communion. Elders function as kind of the spiritual leadership of our church. And the deacons, we just make that distinction that the deacons serve as physical leaders. They care for the physical needs of the church. When there's a place where they can get in and care for people and help people, that's where they are. And that's what takes place here. These modern-day deacons are raised up, and they're put into play to care for some of the physical needs in the church. Stephen's one of them, and Stephen is a standout leader. And it said that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, that he's full of grace and truth. And it says that in these days, Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So he is a, a standout leader. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilician Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so, again, I want you to hear this. 
that there are different Jewish sects, right? Sects, S-E-C-T-S. Comes out a little funny, you get my point, right? So there's divisions amongst the Jews, and there's different people that kind of claim allegiances to different things. In fact, uh, Larry was gracious enough to come over yesterday, and we were doing some electrical work at my house, and we were just talking. We were talking about all kinds of things and, and about how denominations and the church has split over the last 2,000 years and how there's so many different groups of people. And it's so hard to kind of, when people go, well, you know, like you're a Christian. Well, what kind of Christian? Do you belong to this? Do you belong to that? And that's not new, right? That exists in Catholicism. That exists in Islam. That existed in Judaism 2,000 years ago. And what we see are there are branches here different versions of this, and they begin to fight internally. And so this isn't all just Christians inside. These are, many of them are Jesus-following Jews, if you will. That's the bulk of what we would call the Christians. And then there's, they're worshiping inside a temple or a synagogue of Jews that are, that are kind of warring factions of Judaism. Now, all of them would say that they serve the same God. All of them would say that they're God's people, but they clearly can't figure out a way to get along. And I know that would never, ever happen in the church today, right? But it happens, right? And so they're beginning to kind of war, and they're also coming out against Stephen. And so I just, as a, as a starting point for you note takers, the, the Jewish roots of Christianity are this. Early in Acts, we see Christianity intrinsically linked to Judaism, with those who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Messiah is just a simple word, meaning the promise of God throughout thousands of years. They were anticipating this fulfillment of God's promises, called a Messiah, struggling to understand those who do believe that that's who Jesus is. And so Christianity itself is still Jewish at this point. And inside Judaism, there are warring factors and all throughout Jesus' life, there are these different groups, the Hellenists who are very Greek, like we said earlier, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, there's all these different groups of Jews, and they can't even get along. The one thing they do get along about is not being like these followers of Jesus. And so they're pushing back, and they're arguing with each other, pushing back against those who follow Jesus. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him, meaning Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon them and seized him, meaning Stephen, and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses had delivered to us. So there's a quote by Jesus that says, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up in three days. Jesus is talking about himself proclaiming his death and resurrection. They're misquoting it. But what they're saying is we've heard these things, and clearly they don't understand them. All this, we know there's a lot of things that Jesus said. It takes some effort to get your head around, right? And so there's a lot going on, and they're saying, hey, listen, we've heard this, and this guy, this guy's a proponent of this Jesus who wants to destroy our temple. Not true, but a misunderstanding. And he wants to change the laws of Moses. Also not true, more of a misunderstanding. And say, so, but here's the deal. This guy's a troublemaker. Now, if, if we just wrap this up in a here's what's going on, here's what's going on. These guys want to change things. That's what they're saying. Right? And we all know that people just, the, the, most people, right, the bulk, the high percent, 80 plus percent of people don't really like change. Right? Studies have been done about early adapters and middle adapters and late adapters. And, and really what that comes out to is a lot of studying spent to tell you something we already know. People resist change. Right? It isn't even good change. People resist good change because change, change is change. Right? Really hard in our marriage, Lisa and I. I'm like all about the next thing, the new thing, the fun thing. Like I'll get a new phone or whatever. And she would still be on a BlackBerry if they worked. Right? You know what I mean? So... <laughs> I don't know how it has to do with anything, but in marriage, you just run into that, right? You run into these resistances and change, and you see this in the church. That's their criticism. These followers of Jesus are trying to change things. Now, from being a guy who has gone into existing churches and restarted churches that were dying or, or struggling or doing that, here's what I can tell you. Here's your number one problem. 
is they don't want to change. And your number one answer is, well, it's always worked like this, right? You go, well, is it working now? No, right? Well, it always worked when we had a pipe organ and a choir. Do you listen to a pipe organ and a choir in the car? No, neither. Like, do you want to reach anybody else? Like, you just, it's, and we say it, it's kind of funny, but it's always been true. Hey, they're trying to change things. That's the critique. Now, listen, there's, there is, there's a foundation of the gospel that doesn't change. Right? There's the truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And there, there are the pieces of the puzzle that, that, that are static, that, that don't change. And the challenge for the church and the challenge for us is figuring out how do those unchanging truths, these eternal things, how do we take those and we put them in each culture, right? How do we do that without changing the things that have to stay the same but putting everything else on the table? And what they're saying is, hey, these, these followers of Jesus, they're trying to change things. And really the change is this. For four plus thousand years, God has been promi promising that a Messiah will come and redeem the people of God. And redeem the earth and redeem a people to himself. And so those that believe that Jesus came and fulfilled all those promises that he lived and that he died and that he rose again and is alive, they're saying, now Jesus is calling us to something new. And that something new isn't, isn't to throw away their temple. It isn't to throw away Moses. In fact, it's to affirm all of that Moses taught. And we'll see that in just a minute. But change is the issue. So verse 15, it says, And in gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now Luke, the author of Acts, I, I think he puts a verse in this. It's kind of giving us a contrast, right? We're going to see the Jewish religious leadership angry, and it says gnashing their teeth, gritting their teeth, stiff necks. We see all these things. And then it gives us this picture of Stephen who, they say his face kind of looks like an angel, right? And so there's this obvious contrast of, of who's doing what here. Acts 7. Here's where we pick up kind of the bulk of the story, and we're going to read several verses at a time as we go through this. Verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The, glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So Stephen gets an opportunity now to speak. So the high priest... If you imagine Judaism as kind of like the U.S., there's a high priest like a president, there's a council like a senate, right? And so the senate has gathered this together. There's accusations being made about Stephen. Hey, he's going to tear up the temple. Hey, he's going to change things. All the things we believe in, those are all going away. This is what he wants to do. Not accurate, not true, but this is what he's being accused of. So now the high priest says, now, let me ask you, so Stephen, is this so? And Stephen has this opportunity to speak. And so what he does, Stephen wisely goes to Scripture, right? So he goes to the Bible. Now, if you're a Bible in the first century, that is the Old Testament only, right? The New Testament, as we're reading it, it's being lived. And so others are going to write this down. We'll call that the New Testament, put those together, call it the Bible. But at this point, if you're Jewish, you have what we would call the Old Testament. That's your Bible. And so he goes straight to Scripture. He goes straight to their history. He goes all the way back to the founder of Judaism or the founder of Israel, Abraham. In fact, Abraham is the grandfather of the man named Israel, right? So he goes back to this, and he says, remember when God called Abraham. Now, when you say Abraham, or when you say Moses in Judaism, it's like you're saying George Washington and Abraham Lincoln together, right? And if we go any newer than Abraham Lincoln, we start fighting. So we'll just leave it at that, right? So these are high points leaders. King David was like the pinnacle, right? Abraham was the founder. I mean, like, you know, it's, and, and Moses. Moses gave us the law. God spoke to Moses. And this is, so this is what he's doing. He's going back to men that they all look back to that have credibility. And he's saying, now remember what God did with Abraham. So here's the story. So God calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia, as Stephen is saying, God calls Abraham out of a country called Ur and the Chaldeans. He calls him to leave his family, a very wealthy family, a very large family, 
But Abraham has no children. He says, I want you to leave your family, and I want you to go to a place where I'm going to show you. Doesn't tell them where they're going yet. Just says, I'm going to show you later, right? You know how that's really fun. We're like, okay, we're going to go. Where are we going? I don't know, right? So fun, right? It's like dads never want to use maps. We're just like going to go, right? So here we go. He says, listen, you're going to go. I'm not showing you where you're going. I just need you to go. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Now, Abraham, I, if, if it were me, now here's, again, I'm going to insert this. I'd have done it different, right? Clearly, I'm wrong. God's right. But I'd have done it different. Like, okay, Abraham comes from a big family. His dad's got a lot of kids. His brothers have kids. Abraham has no kids. So if I'm going to say this, wealthy family, big family, I'm going to use them. I'm going to start a whole brand new faith. I'm going to, really, I'm going to start codifying what it looks like to please God. I'd have picked another brother with some kids. Right? And I'd have left them where they were because they had a lot of money, influence, and power. Not what God does. God picks the only childless brother and says, hey, leave all that behind, and I'm going to go make you a powerful nation that's going to bless the whole earth. Here's where Stephen starts. Remember when God called Abraham. And he begins to unpack this story about how Abraham was called out of the land Right, and how God did this. So verse 4, then Abraham went out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran, and after this his father died. God removed him from there and into this land which you're now living. Where you're standing is where God called Abraham, right? Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, and this offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation, they serve, God said, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So here's God's promise to Abraham. Hey, I'm going to take you out of your comfy home where all the money and power and family is, and you have no kids, and I'm going to take you to a place, I'm not even going to tell you where yet. I'll tell you later. But I'm going to take you to a place you're never going to own land again. And I'm going to make a great big nation out of you. Yeah, I know. You're old, have no kids. Got that, right? And then when I do that, the generations that come after you aren't really going to own the land either. What's going to happen is I'm going to put them in 400 years of slavery first. Totally. Sign me up. I want to go, right? Um, this is what God says. This, this, here's what's coming. However, Abraham hearing this is God's plan, God's calling me to something. By the way, Abraham wasn't even a follower of God when God started talking to him. He says, I'm going to go follow this God who spoke to me, who's alive, who's got a plan. I don't have to see the plan in my life. The plan's bigger than me. Like this is about redemption of the world. Like, out of me, all nations will be blessed. Now, Abraham sounds really godly in this moment. All kinds of epic fails in Abraham's life. But he does do what God calls him to do. And so he goes there, and he goes out to a place. It's not him that owns land. It's not his son who owns land. It's not his grandson that owns land. It's not even his great-grandson. In fact, it is hundreds of years later. If you're a note-taker, God's plan, when God calls us toward his plan, it almost always includes our changing what we're doing, and it doesn't always make sense. Right? It calls us to change, us to trust, us to believe that what God is doing, though it's not like the way we do it, is better. And that it may not make sense now, but it will. Verse 8, and he gave him... I mean, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. It's Father's Day, so we won't talk about that part. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. I love this. So your great, great grandson's going to get sold into slavery, but God will be with him. Still on board? Abraham's like, yep, I'm on board, right? But God was with him, verse 10, and God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. So he goes back, he's given some early Israel history. He reminds them there's going to be this and that. But do you hear how God begins to accomplish things? But now, see, Egypt is the most prolific, most powerful, most rich nation on the planet 
when Joseph's alive. And though Joseph is sold into slavery, and probably not a fun day for him, probably not a fun few years, eventually Joseph ends up running Egypt under Pharaoh. And so again, God has a plan. God knows where he's headed. But I know when you're in, the, when you're in that moment when your older brother sold you into slavery and you're chained to something and being marched away into slavery, I'm sure that day is not fun. And I'm sure that that day is causing rapid change in your life. And I'm sure that that day, you don't get God's plan. But what God is doing is teeing up Joseph to be the leader of the most profound nation on the planet of his day. Verse 11, and there came a famine all throughout Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob, that's Joseph's dad, if you're unfamiliar with the story, when Jacob heard that there was, no, that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. These are all his older brothers that sold him into slavery. Now, Joseph runs Egypt. Again, Joseph handles this way better than I would have, right? There would have been some get back right about here. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought. Notice Abraham re-enters the story, long dead. Had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So God used a famine. What God used a famine for? To bring this family from where they were into the land of Egypt. And when they got there, their little boy, long thought dead by the dad, sold into slavery by the brothers, runs Egypt. So again, along the way, lots of change. Along the way, lots of things that don't make sense. Lots of things ungodly like brothers selling other brothers into slavery, right? But God has a plan. God's doing something. God's in this. And now, when there's a famine all over the land, but there's grain in Egypt, Joseph's the one, Joseph's the reason there's actually grain in Egypt. And so this family is well cared for. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, long dead Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. As the promise drew near. Here's what Stephen, now I've got to remember this context. We're not talking about Abraham or Moses or Joseph. This is Stephen standing in front of the religious leadership who have rejected Jesus and are, and are looking to Stephen. Really, again, we know the end of the story. They're looking to kill Stephen because he follows Jesus. And so they said, do you have anything to say for yourself? Because all I hear is you want to change stuff and it's not right. And so Stephen, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, begins to unpack this Old Testament or Israel history of showing how God has consistently worked through things that may not have made sense at the time and called people to radical change and pushed them down the road, but God always had this plan. And so as we see them increase and multiply, we see God accomplishing his, God accomplishing his redemptive story. As a church who plants other churches, this is the kind of story that we need to grab hold to. As we send out leaders, as we send out people, it is painful and it is hard at times. You'll be growing a church, you get into this place where everything seems to be humming along, and then you'll plant out 25, 30 people. And some of your best, and we don't send out your, like, C-string people. You've got to send out your best leaders, right? And as you're doing that, because you want success in that new place. And so as you do this, you go through the pain of doing this. We've got to hang on to the stories that say, you know, listen, man, it, it doesn't always make sense. It, doesn't, it isn't always just a human logic, linear kind of thinking but God has a plan to accomplish, to redeem the whole earth. Just as in Jesus, the plan must not have made sense. When Jesus enters into human history, in poverty, in a family without a place even to give birth, and that Jesus would grow up in really a poor neighborhood, and for years be on the run because Herod's trying to kill him, and all, the, all these other things. But then to go on and really travel around as a teacher and a healer, really with not a lot to call his own. And that Jesus, the, the plan of God, the, the pinnacle of all that God is going to do is Jesus. And this Jesus is going to go die on a cross. 
And you've got to imagine if you're a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, okay, listen, this is supposed to be the king of kings, God in the flesh. We're starting to wrap our heads around that this is actually God, and we're starting to get this, and now he's dead. I don't understand. That's why when Jesus raises from the dead, that becomes the story. And that's why people who abandoned Jesus, went back to fishing, lied about knowing him, doing all these other things, that's why those people, the weak in nature prior to that, when they see him live after he'd been dead for days, they will go on and die, give their lives for that story, for that gospel, for that good news that God loves us enough to enter into our story. So the gospel didn't make any sense either. The people following Jesus, though Jesus is unpacking it to them, they didn't get it either. But we have to give them a break because in the moment, it makes no sense. So Stephen is, is unpacking this history of how God works and what God does. And he keeps saying, now, and they increased and multiplied. Verse 18, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race. When we hear shrewd today, we tend to think of like smart this is ruthless. This is more he dealt ruthlessly with them. And forced our fathers to expose their infants. So there's a bit of uh, slavery and infanticide. So that they would not be kept alive. He's trying to kill off this generation and this race of people. At this time, verse 20, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when Moses was exposed... Father's Pharaoh adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended an oppressed man, the oppressed man, and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. So here's what happens. So Moses is born into a Hebrew slave family in Egypt, right? And at this time, Pharaoh said, listen, all the male children under two, I want to know where all the male kids are, and he's murdering all the kids. That's what he's doing. So that's, again, so now this, as you're following along, God's people are now enslaved, and they're being killed. They're literally, an, an ethnic cleansing is taking place, if you will, in a modern-day scenario. They're murdering their kids to kill off this generation but keep the slave labor. So Moses is born into this Hebrew slave family. And so he's raising his family for about three months. And when he was exposed, in other words, when they found out that there was a son, they send him off. You ever watch the movie? They send him off a little basket, right? Charlton Heston, the whole deal, right? So if you don't know who Charlton Heston is, it's cool. You'll, grow, you'll get older. Anyhow, so... The story is, so they send him off, and Pharaoh's daughter, the king, the, the emperor's daughter, finds him and brings him and raises him in their own home. Now, again, if I was going to enter in this story, and I'm like, okay, how am I going to set the free the slaves of Egypt? There's a lot of easier ways to do it than to have a guy who's born a slave and has to be sent off, and, like, all of a sudden, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and he walks through this. Like, there's another way, right? But when God has a plan, it doesn't always make sense. And so what happens is Moses is taken in and raised as royalty, though he's Hebrew, though he's a Jew. And so he is raised in Pharaoh's house. And so he is brought up and taught and educated. Well, the problem is he also knows he's Hebrew. He also understands he's not Egypt. He's a Hebrew. And so there are things as he goes throughout life, as he appreciates his education in his home, he also knows he should be out there building stuff as slave labor. And this eats away inside of him until finally he sees an opportunity. And it says this, verse 24, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. So he sees a Hebrew slave being wronged by an Egyptian, and he murders the Egyptian. Right? And so he goes out and kills the Egyptian. Verse 25 says, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. That's a dangerous sentence. But they did not understand. And on the following day, Moses appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses goes to take this redemptive plan into his own hands. Now, I think, I think Moses in his heart had good intentions, not condoning the fact that he murders the Egyptian, just in case we're in question there, right? But I think what he's doing is defending someone 
who's marginalized, who's a slave, who has no one to defend him. So he goes out there, he does it, he does it wrongly, but in his heart, he's like, I'm going to be the salvation for these people. See, man's plan doesn't always seem to work that way, right? Our plans tend to go south really quick. And though God's plans require massive change and they don't always make sense, our plans don't work. So Moses goes out and does this, and the next guy sees two Hebrew slaves quarreling, and he goes out to try and reconcile them and be the mediator, and they're like, hey, what are you going to do, kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Just that form of justice didn't work out well for him, right? So Stephen, remember, this is about Stephen, it's not about Moses. Stephen is telling this story to a Jewish religious leadership inside a temple. They want to kill him because they're accusing him of wanting to change some things. Verse 29, it says, and at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, let's pause there for a second. We'll pick back up in verse 30. So now Moses is on the run for murder. 40 years in a desert in Midian, right? Not only do our plans not always work, sometimes they just get in the way for a long, long time. So here's what happens. Moses thinks he's doing something really good, and what it does is cost him 40 years in the desert. And I don't know what God's plan would have been without this hiccup, right? It's not like this surprised God or anything. But I bet it doesn't include 40 years in the desert, right? So Moses now flees, runs. Let's pick back up verse 30. And it says, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai and a flame of fire in a bush when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, God speaking, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely come, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you back to Egypt. Now the plan is, hey, Moses, I know the whole on the run for murder thing, but you're going to go back to Egypt, right? You're going to go back. I get that you're wanted there. I get that you betrayed your Egyptian upbringing and murdered an Egyptian for a Hebrew. And I get that the Hebrews don't really like you because they don't trust you either. But you're the plan, right? Now, to be fair, God speaks from a burning bush. I mean, like, he has a compelling message. He gets a hold of Moses' intentions, attention. And he calls him and says, listen, I'm going to send you back, right? You're the plan now to liberate. Not the way you did it, not by killing an Egyptian worker, but you're going to do it now my way. God's ways. You're a note taker. God uses the most unlikely people in the most uncommon ways to accomplish redemption. The church is filled with unlikely people doing things that only God can accomplish so that Jesus is glorified. And I feel like I'm just the most unlikely person to be here. Doing the un most unlikely thing with my background, with my history. With my, there's so many better choices. But God does this. And God will use anyone. God will use an unlikely person so that he is glorified and the person is not. So God is calling Moses, a runaway Hebrew slash kind of with an Egyptian upbringing on the run for murder, is going to send him back so he can be the one who says, God says, let the slaves go. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. So here's what Stephen's saying. To the religious leadership standing there, to those who want to kill him and say, hey, listen, you're trying to change a bunch of stuff. Here's what Stephen says. Remember the people in Moses' day? They didn't like Moses either. Now, you guys hold Moses highly. They question him. Just like you're standing here and you're questioning Jesus and you, you executed Jesus and you're questioning those who follow him, but you hold up Moses' law. But remember, the people in Moses' day didn't care for him. They questioned him. They challenged him. He says, you're, you're, you're one in a long line of generations of Jewish leaders who keep challenging what God is doing. And just because it doesn't make sense for you or because it causes you to change and go outside your comfort zone, you've got to understand this is what God has always done. God has always called us outside of what makes sense and what's comfortable. And God has always called us to follow him, and it's always worked out. 
we look back with hindsight and say Moses was amazing, but the people of his day didn't want to follow him. And Stephen's saying, and you're doing the same thing today. Verse 36, he says this. This man, meaning Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Stephen begins to preach Jesus in this. Quoting Moses, whom they respect, pointing out that it hasn't always gone this way, saying, remember, Moses kept pointing someone after him that came and was greater. Talking about Jesus. Verse 38. Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living oracles, in other words, the word of God, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for this, Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what was become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, rejoicing in the works of their hands. So here's what Stephen is saying to them. He goes, listen, remember, we hold Moses high. We hold Abraham high. But here's the deal. When Moses was alive, they didn't obey him. They didn't listen to him. And though he would go up on the mountain and literally would see miracles done through Moses by God, their hearts drifted. And their hearts wanted to go back to Egypt. And, I'm, and if you know the story, as you're, they're moving through Exodus, the, literally the Hebrew slaves that have been liberated and are now not living in slavery and are wandering around a desert, when things get tough, the question they ask Moses is, what? Were there not enough graves in Egypt for us to die there? Not, hey, man, you know what? This is really tough. But at least we're not enslaved, right? At least we're not, they're not killing our kids. Like, let's figure this out. Nothing. Like, nope, was there not enough graves in Egypt is the question they ask Moses. He says, remember, it's never been easy in the moment, right? I'm going to read through a large chunk of this so we can wrap this up. Verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it was written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, a false god, and the star of the god Raphon, another false god, and images that you made to worship, and I sent you into exile in Babylon. Our fathers, the tent of witnesses in the wilderness, had the tent of witness in the wilderness, and just as he spoke to Moses, direct, directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers turn and brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that drove out before our father. In other words, when God did miracles through them too, they would be unfaithful, and then all of a sudden they would return to God, and God would do amazing things. So it was until the days of David, this is the height of Israel, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yes, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So long story short, God continues to speak to the people of God Sometimes they're completely disobedient and want to go their own way, do things that make sense to them. Sometimes they're more obedient and they're trying to follow God. God will bless them. God will lead them. God will lift his hand off them when they're just not listening and let it happen and then draw them back in when they return to him. Verse 51, Stephen says, you stiff-necked, this is to the religious leadership. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and the ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. I know those of you who have been around for a while have heard this story, but I don't know of a better one. But stiff-necked is this hard-hearted comment. I, I always tell a story. I, I have pit bulls. I, I had one eons ago, a little deaf white pit bull. We didn't know she was deaf when we got her. Long story. Anyhow, we found that out. So we had to use hand gestures to get her to do whatever. She was super obedient. But there was a time when she didn't want to listen to us. And or didn't want to obey us. It's probably a, way, a better way to say that. And here, literally, so we tell her, come here. We tell her, sit. We tell her, stay. We do whatever. And she was super obedient. But she, when she didn't want to obey, here's what she'd do. No joke. She'd just turn her head around. Like, if I can't see you, I don't know what you're telling me. And I don't have to do it. Right? Stephen says that's what you're doing. You're just, you stiff-necked people. God's telling you what to do, and you're just not doing it. God's saying, go this direction. Here's where we're going. You're just unwilling to follow the Holy Spirit, he says. He says, your fathers did it, and so 
do you? Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, meaning Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Talk about Jesus. You, the religious leaders who received the laws delivered by angels, did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So boldly, Stephen is accusing them of ignoring God and God's spirit and saying, listen, the one God sent to redeem you, you killed him, you ignored him, just like you've done throughout history. And again, what do they do? Instead of repent, they grind their teeth, they gnash their teeth, they get angry at him. Verse 55, and this is what we read earlier. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll pick him up in a couple weeks. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So there's a young leader named Stephen who, when challenged by the religious leadership, stands up and just uncorks an Israel history on them. And just says, listen, you're as stiff-necked and unrepentant as the people who came before you. Always calling them to repent. Saying, listen, it didn't make sense when Jesus came either, but you killed Jesus. Didn't make sense when God called Abraham out of wealth, out of a large family. In fact, calling Abraham at all made no sense. Moses is not a best bet in a race, right? David, a little shepherd kid. And the story goes on and goes on and goes on. But this is what God does. And now you're resisting change. And now you're saying, no, we can't do this. Now here's what you're doing. You're doing it again. And Stephen just lays down an Old Testament promise of the gospel, always pointing to Jesus, reminding them Abraham pointed forward to Jesus, Mo Moses pointed forward to Jesus. And now as Stephen stands there among witnesses who are alive, who had seen Jesus alive, seen him dead for days, seen him alive again for weeks, watched him ascend into heaven. Stephen is says, and now you won't even hear it. And so they stone him to death, a violent death. They stone him for calling them to change. So who gets it right here? Is it the religious leadership or is it a young leader named Stephen? Clearly, Stephen is right on track. Stephen's murdered for his faith. But because of that, because of what God does, God uses Stephen in such a way that right on the other side of this, right as we, as we open up next week, here's what's going to happen. This Christian Jewish, this Jewish Christian message, really, this Jewish gospel about Jesus that's really sitting in Jerusalem amongst thousands of people in Jerusalem. It's not moving. It's staying. Unlike Jesus called them to do, to go to the ends of the earth, it's, it's kind of harbored up here. And instead of going out, what it's doing is just kind of staying here and stifling, and people are beginning to argue about other things, peripheral issues, and other stuff. And as they begin to say, hey, listen, no, we've got to do this. Everybody pushes back. And so Stephen stands up. And I love the words of Stephen. You can read that part that we read in the beginning and closed with. When, Jesus, uh, when Stephen sees Jesus, Jesus is standing. Every time you get a glimpse into heaven, God or Jesus, whatever you're seeing is seated on a throne. All throughout Revelation, Jesus seated on a throne. That's where Jesus is now, seated on a throne. But Stephen gets a standing ovation. Stephen gets Jesus standing going, that was amazing. That was a great history of it. That, that was epic. And he stood there. But what happens now is this pushes Christianity outside of its comfort zone. It'll start going into Judea and Samaria. It'll start its war against way into Cyprus and Antioch and Ephesus and all the way out into Rome. Because God had a plan all along. The question we have to ask ourselves today is where do we get stuck and where are we not listening? Where is it that God is calling us to change, to do something that doesn't necessarily make sense? 
Listen, right now, I, I'm just coming back from vacation. Last week, my, my first week back in the office. And we are, I, in fact, I, on my way in, stopped by our new building this morning. Friday, everybody was out, left a ton of keys. I can't wait to give to, like, Marsha or somebody, right? So this big old thing of keys, and it's just empty. And I got to go in there, and I prayed, and it's cool. And God is, God is moving us there. And that's hard. It's three, four miles north. Some of you live south. It's in a different city. It's, in a, it's not in Orange County. If I had my way, it'd be in Orange County, right? But it's, God's calling us. And God is doing amazing things to get us there. And God has done amazing things. I remember the day we wired the money. We paid cash for the building. I remember the day it happened, and Joey and I, I made Joey come in and sit and listen to the wire transfer just to backstop it. And I remember we hung up, we prayed. I go, you know how many people will never, ever be able to do what we just did? You know, 99.9% of the churches on the planet will never be able to do what we just did. They'll never just be able to pay cash for a building. And we just prayed. And we thank God for what God was doing. We thank God. We thought, it doesn't matter what I do. Stay here. Go somewhere else. Do this. Do that. It doesn't matter. If Joey stays, Joey, it doesn't matter. We'll probably never have that moment again. That God gave us that place, that time. He said, here, I'm taking you here. Okay, God, I don't even know what this looks like. And in some ways, it makes great sense. And in some ways, it makes no sense at all. But here's what we know. God is calling us. And the church is built on God's promises, not our plans or our strengths or our gifts. Last slide we have. A genera as generations continues to change, whether by church planting or gaining our own building, God's plans are often hard, but we know they are trustworthy. Hindsight almost always makes more sense than it does in the moment. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I don't imagine that I'd have been any different than Peter had I spent three years with you, Jesus, in person and watch you be betrayed, watch you be beaten, watch you be crucified and die. I'd have left too because it made no sense. I don't know that I'd have been any different than a religious leadership who said, man, you are just changing too much. You're asking us to share the gospel with Samaritans who are like dogs. <clears throat> You're asking us to treat these people better than they treat us. You're asking us to leave our homes, our livelihoods. You're asking us to go, to go and to share the gospel with, with people that have never heard of you, with people that will, some, in some cases, will kill us. I don't know that I've ever done any better than anyone else, Lord. But you've given us this moment. And you've given us a history. And 66 books filled with stories of faithful men and women. And you have used us and confirmed in us and done miraculous and amazing things in us so that we know we can trust you. No matter what the story is, no matter what it is you call us to do, let us trust you. Let us never lean on our own understanding, but let us be yours.